everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I'm the host of this program, and we are so grateful that you are tuning in, especially today, because I'm talking about one of our favorite topics, prayer. But before we get going on that, I just want to give a shout out to our podcast patrons. Thank you all so much for your continued support. We appreciate you more than you know. And I just want to tell you that we are currently working on some special episodes just for you. So stay tuned. And if you would like to learn more about supporting JCM or becoming a podcast patron, please consider doing so by following the link that's in the description of this episode. It's important for you to know that all donations go directly back into the ministry, not to us. We just volunteer our time. But we try to offer scholarships for people to attend events. We we need to pay for printed materials and marketing and filming and production and editing and all kinds of things. And we do it because we love it. We want to serve the Lord in this way. We want to serve you in this way. We want to get the word of God out in as many ways as possible. So any support you can give is appreciated. Well, today's episode is called Developing an Effective Prayer Life, Part 1, Three Reasons Why We Pray. How many of you struggle with prayer or like how to pray or how long to pray? Or maybe you ask yourself what to pray. Or maybe some of you out there struggle with how to enter into a time of prayer. Then you get through all those questions and and you ask yourself, is it even working? Does God hear me? Well, you're not alone. We have all struggled with those questions from time to time. Recently, we held a workshop at a local church titled Developing an Effective Prayer Life. It was well-received, and as such, people asked us if we would make a recording of it, as in a podcast. So, here we are. And I'm not sure if it will be exactly the same way as it was originally taught, but we hopefully will get close. And I broke the teaching up into two episodes because when I originally presented it, it was in two separate sessions, so I think that works well. So what I'd like to do today in part one is take you through a few reasons on why we pray. And then in part two, walk you through a practical exercise on how to enter into prayer. And to do that, I'm going to be taking you on a journey through the tabernacle of Moses. But that's in part two. I love teaching on the tabernacle of Moses because it is such a profound and beautiful picture of Christ. And if you don't know what that is or you know very little about it, it's okay. I'll take you through it when we get there. But I just find it a beautiful way to learn how to enter into a time of holy prayer. Now, before we start on the three reasons why we pray, let's just take a moment and be reminded of what is said of prayer in the New Testament. First of all, we are instructed to watch and pray. We are also instructed to pray earnestly. We're also told to continue steadfastly in prayer. And to pray and believe, not doubt. We are instructed to pray without ceasing. We are told to not be anxious, but to pray. We are also told to find a private place to pray, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. We're also told to confess our sins and pray for each other, so that we might be healed, because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We're also told to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And then we're also told 
to devote ourselves to prayer. So with all that said, maybe we should ask the question, what is prayer exactly? It seems quite important, doesn't it? But what is it? Well, having been involved in prayer ministries and events for the last 25 years, not to mention being someone who finds prayer one of the most powerful things a believer can do, from my own personal experience, I think the first thing we need to recognize about prayer is the supernatural aspect of it. In fact, I think it's the most supernatural thing we can do on a daily basis because it's where God's crown of creation, mankind, us, has been given the opportunity to commune directly with his creator. And that alone makes it a mystery worth searching out, don't you think? No other religion offers a relationship like that. Therefore, when we enter into prayer, We are entering into something that's not just supernatural, but very sacred and holy in nature. And it's something that transcends time and space. Prayer transcends space in the fact that it reaches to the ear of God, as is said by the psalmist. Prayers reach his holy throne. Your prayers reach the throne of God. And we're even told in Revelation that God has a divine place where prayers are collected. But prayers also transcend time. When Jesus prayed in John 17 to, to his Father, he prayed that his Father would keep those that the Father had given him. In other words, all people who would believe in him one day. And that includes us. Jesus' prayers back then transcend time into future generations. Therefore, our prayers, they outlive us. Prayers in generations past are still actively working in generations future. That means my prayers will outlive me. Your prayers will outlive you. And that's a profound thought. But besides transcending time and space, prayer is also something that has an impact in the here and now. Prayer changes us individually but it also has the power to shape the world. First, as individuals, prayer humbles us. As his created beings, we are entering into the presence of the creator, a place where his holy fire purges us, prunes us, and refines us. But also being in the presence of Christ like that through prayer, Christ being the rabbi, our teacher, Prayer is then used also as a time where his spirit teaches us and grows us and shows us the way to walk out our faith. It's also the very place where we learn true worship, but also where we begin to crucify our flesh. Again, this is just me speaking from my own personal experience. But prayer also has the far-reaching impact of changing the world. I'm a, I'm a vivid, uh, a visual picture person. I, I learn visually. And so when I think of prayer, I always picture drone operators, for example, how, how they operate aircraft, right, from a small little room in some building in the Nevada desert, for example. These people can re- release bombs on targets located maybe thousands of miles away. Well, that's how I picture prayer. 
when we pray, it activates a response from heaven, from the confines of our prayer rooms and prayer closets. I mean, that's remarkable to me. The moment we pray, angels move on our behalf, bringing an impact to both the physical and spiritual realm. We see this in the Bible when Daniel's prayers activated a response so strong, it caused spiritual warfare to take place between the prince of Persia and, and God's angels, right? And so God shapes the world by prayer. And I, I personally and firmly believe that every battle we face needs to be fought in the spiritual realm first through prayer before we can see the victory manifest in the physical. That's how powerful I believe prayer is. One of the reasons we are seeing the decay in society right now is because, sadly, God's people have come down off of the wall of prayer that we are supposed to be on. Not all, but many. And until the body of Christ relights the prayer altars of their hearts individually and corporately, I'm afraid we will continue to watch the unraveling of society on monumental levels. We have stopped being the salt and light that we were called to be. So prayer is important, and I believe it is our greatest Christian privilege. So now, with all that said, why do we pray? There are many reasons why we pray, but I'd like to share with you today Three in particular that I believe hold incredible importance. The first reason why we pray is to know him. It's to know him. When I first became a born-again believer, there were two things that I wanted to dig into right away. The first was the Bible. I wanted truth. And the second was learning how to pray. I grew up with religion, but not a personal relationship with Christ. And through the liturgy at my church and through my parents, the prayers that I learned were all rote. We had the same prayers for dinner and we had the same prayers of thankfulness for after dinner. We had the same prayers that we said every night before going to bed. We had the same prayer we prayed if we drove past our church. We had the same prayer we prayed when we lost something. You know, you get the idea. So I definitely knew prayer was important just by the routine of prayer that we had. But I didn't realize until I was born again just how important and how profoundly deep and powerful it gets. Early in my walk with the Lord, when I was reading my Bible one day, I came across a verse in Exodus that stirred my spirit to the core. It was from Exodus 33, chapter 33, verse 13. And I still pray this verse to this day. And it says, Now therefore I pray, If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you. The moment I read that verse, I was pricked in my heart. Has that ever happened to any of you where you've read a verse and just instantly your heart is pricked? There's something that God is trying to say to you. Well, that was me. And I kept rereading that verse. Show me your way so I may know you. I prayed that over and over and over again. Moses wanted to know God's will so that he could know him. And I think that's what struck me about this verse. 
Moses wanted to know God's will so that he could know him. I wanted the same thing and still do. But what struck me was the fact that Moses was saying this in chapter 33. Up until this point in the story of Moses, he had already encountered the living God in a number of intimate and supernatural ways. Do you remember? Let me list some of them for you just as a reminder. First of all, Moses experienced God's presence with the burning bush, right? Then he was sent back to Egypt to deliver his people out of bondage. Then he experienced the powerful display of God's power through a series of plagues that ultimately led to the deliverance of his people from Egypt. Moses then led what many believe to be about two million people out of Egypt, when you count women and children, and he led them through the desert with the protection of a cloud of glory by day and a God's pillar of fire by night. <laughs> that alone is, is incredible. But then he experienced the miraculous event of the parting of the Red Sea. And then after that, on the way to Mount Sinai, he experienced the miracle of bitter waters made sweet, where God revealed himself as the Lord who heals. Then he experienced God's provision with manna in the desert. Then he experienced the miracle of water gushing from a rock in the desert, which God commanded Moses to strike when the people complained about being thirsty. Then he experienced the victory over the Amalekites on their journey. They were, keep in mind, former slaves. It's impossible odds coming against a formidable people. But this is that story where Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hand so that Joshua could defeat the army. Then you get to chapter 19, and they have finally arrived in Mount Sinai. And this is where God makes this beautiful covenant with his people. It's actually a marriage betrothal, verses 3 through 8, where God makes these promises to his people Israel, and the people say, we will, just like they would at a wedding. Then after that, immediately after that, Moses and the people then experience God's presence as he descends on the top of Mount Sinai to meet with his people. But the display of his power in that was intimidating. You had thunderings going on. You have lightnings. You have a thick cloud on the mountain, not to mention the sound of a trumpet, a shofar, blasting out into the desert land. Waxing louder and louder, so much so that the people in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai then all of a sudden was completely covered in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke, it says, rose up like a furnace, and the whole mountain is quaking like it would be in an earthquake. Just imagine that scene happening in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a desert. Then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws. And then we get to chapter 24 when he now calls Moses and Aaron and 70 elders up partway the mountain where they saw the God of Israel, it says, and it appeared he was standing on sapphire pavement. This is all of these experiences they're having. Then Moses is called up higher from there, alone, where he is then given the detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle of God. Then, while he's gone, the people, you know the story, they built the golden calf, didn't they? 
Moses comes down the mountain. He sees the golden calf. He gets angry. He breaks the tablets. He pleads with God to spare the people and show mercy because God is angry and about to wipe them out. But Moses intervened. And so then this is where Moses says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And those who weren't on the Lord's side were killed that day. 3,000 people fell that day. And we're not done yet. Then after all of that, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the people, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And this is where the Lord would descend in a cloud and talk to Moses. And it says that the Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. Now we get to chapter 33. Do you see why this verse struck me? Not only do I want the same thing, I want to know God. But the fact that all these things happened leading up to that. The Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. And yet right after that, Moses says, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. Weren't they already intimate if God spoke to him as though speaking to a friend? Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence at the top of the mountain. And yet even after all of that and all these experiences, everything I just listed, Moses still asked to know him. And I believe he knew. Moses knew that even after all of that, there was more. There was more. And it makes me think about Christ. We have not even begun to tap into the depths of our Lord, have we? We are talking about Jesus Christ, the Lord of eternity, the image of the invisible God, Paul says, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Paul says, who dwells in unapproachable light, whose throne is of old, who is from everlasting, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, whose kingdom is from one generation to the next who does according to his will in the armies of heaven and and on the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? The one whom the Father has bestowed all of the power to close out the end of the age, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of the nations, the Lord of glory, the rider on the white horse, whose name is faithful and true, the yes and the amen, the faithful and true witness. I could go on and on. The word, the branch, the wonderful one, the rock of ages, the ancient of days, right? That's our Lord. We should be praying, show us your way, Lord Jesus, that we may know you, truly know you. Show us your will so that we know you. That's what pricked my heart. It's essential that we get to know our Lord especially since we will be spending eternity with him. But we have not even scratched the surface of what that looks like. And friends, 
I say this in all love, but we are warned in scripture the danger of not knowing him. The parable of the ten virgins alone gives us a sober picture of that, doesn't it? Ten virgins waiting on their bridegroom, a picture of Christ returning, by the way. Ten virgins, virgins, meaning pure and chaste, waiting on Christ with their oil lamps burning. And in the waiting, they fell asleep. Much like a lot of us right now, in the waiting for Christ's return, many in the body of Christ have fallen asleep. Well, all of a sudden, the angels hear the shout of his arrival in the middle of the night, and five are ready to go meet him, their lamps still burning with oil. But the other five? Their lamps burned out. In the waiting, they did not do what was necessary to have enough oil. And I fear that is some of us. In this waiting, we've grown complacent, and we're not keeping our oil lamps full. And now in the parable, the bridegroom is here, and no one will sell these other five any extra oil. It's too late. He closes the door, and they're knocking for him to open it, into which he answers, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. That verse makes me tremble. To know you in this verse, to know in this verse means you stand in no relation to me. And yet, weren't all ten of them waiting for the bridegroom? Aren't many Christians out there saying that Christ is returning? The risk we take of not knowing him is to our peril. We must make sure our lamps are filled with oil. And the filling station, I find, is prayer. Matthew 7.23 says something similar. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, that statement alone is powerful. But then he continues. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practiced lawlessness. I never knew you here suggests I have never been in an approving connection of you. Jesus is telling us, friends, in the Gospels, through parables, that it's important to know him. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. How will we know what the will of the Father is if we don't seek to know his Son? Do you know the will of the Father? Jesus said that the Son can do nothing himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son does in like manner, John 5. If Christ desired to do the Father's will, then we should desire to do the same, don't you think? Moses did that. He sought the will of God. 
even decades after his encounter with the burning bush. He still wanted to know what pleased God, even though God talked to him as though talking to a friend. And we should desire to know what pleases Christ, even though some of you call Christ your friend. Paul and the apostles were called ambassadors for Christ. It says, as if God was pleading through us, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Generally speaking, an ambassador is a respected official acting as a representative of a nation. Sent to a foreign land, the ambassador's role then is to reflect the official position of the sovereign body that gave him authority. Well, Paul urges all Christians to, to consider themselves ambassadors for Christ. We are to go and bring the influence of Christ's kingdom to the place that we live. But how can we do that if we don't know what the will of the Lord is? Otherwise, what we're bringing to society right now is our own interpretation of that will. So this is the first reason on why we pray. It's essential. We have to get to know our Lord. The second reason why we pray is to develop intimacy. Right after Moses prays that, that he wants to know God, he says this in verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? The heart of Christianity is a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. But oftentimes this relationship takes a back seat to Christian service, doesn't it? Moses physically moved his tent outside the camp to meet personally with God, away from everyone else. Maybe it's time we do the same. Experiencing the presence of God on a daily basis is more important than anything else you can do in Christian service. When Moses would return to the camp after speaking with God, something else beautiful happened. His servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man at the time, he stayed back. He didn't depart from there, from the tent because he too wanted to experience the Lord's presence the way Moses was experiencing it. And that is such a beautiful picture to me. When I started out trying to develop a consistent prayer life, it wasn't anything you would think. I was working full time while I was trying to grow a family. Time was not on my side, friends. But I committed to creating a routine. It was that important to me. And so I would get up earlier than my normal time, even if it was only 15 minutes earlier, and I would pray. Sometimes I was so tired, I would just sit there and not say a word. But I started spending time in the tent, so to speak. And he showed up, even for 15 minutes. Although the time was short to start, my desire to meet him each day grew. And that's the most important thing. Do you desire to meet with him? Because now, after all the years of forming a routine, when I go to pray, as soon as my door is shut behind me, I get so excited that I begin talking to him immediately before prayer even begins. I'm like a little kid in a candy store. So I just want to encourage you that no matter what stage of life you are in, 
Keep pressing forward in the effort to grow and deepen your relationship with Christ through prayer. It's a different encounter than reading the Bible. And in every step you take, trust that he will meet you there. Because what you're going to discover over time is that time in prayer, it's less and less about our personal requests, which he already knows, by the way. But that's how we kind of view prayer, right? But it becomes more and more about being with someone you love. That's it. And in that place and that position of your heart, something special begins to happen. You desire to please him. How can I serve you today? What is on your heart? Who or what do you want me to pray for? And as you pursue him, he begins to share things with you by his spirit. You may find yourself in prayer and all of a sudden you're grieving over something with literal tears. You may not even know what it is, but you feel a pain in your heart. And what you're feeling is his pain over some particular situation. And I know that might sound strange if you've never experienced it. Or maybe you Maybe you might feel something else, I don't know, a sense of urgency to pray immediately about someone or something or someplace. It's a, all of it. It's a profound thing. It sounds strange, but it's no less true. Because what can happen is when we go into prayer focused on just us, we forget that God the Father has feelings, as does Christ his Son. This struck me deeply one day when I read Ezekiel 6. Verse 9, when speaking about Israel, whom God had passed judgment on, God says that he tells Ezekiel, he was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me. God's heart can be crushed. And sometimes when you develop intimacy in prayer, he lets you feel that crushing and it crushes your heart. And this is where intimacy grows. You see, when intimacy grows with God, he begins to trust you with his heart, with things he cares about. He trusted Ezekiel to share with him how Israel hurt him. And prayer, friends, it's not about being the most eloquent or articulate prayer person in the room. It's nothing about that. It's about showing up faithfully to meet him in the secret place. He delights in that. Developing intimacy, therefore, is the key, I believe, to an abiding relationship. Abiding is what takes you deep into the heart of God, right? It's that sap that is going from the branch to the vine. So deep is abiding that it produces the fragrance of the knowledge of God in you. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the fragrance of the knowledge of God is diffused through you in every place. And it happens without you even realizing it. But that's the fruit of it. That's what it's producing in you. Because after spending time in the secret place at his throne, right? We come boldly to his throne of grace. That's what prayer is. You're at his throne. We leave that time of prayer unknowingly with his fragrance still attached to us. Psalm 45 says, 
All his garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Being in his presence rubs off on us. And when you're going about your day after your time in prayer, you'll find interesting things start to happen. Start noticing how people will suddenly be drawn to you. Because actually they're drawn to him. The fragrance, the presence. You'll find yourself in a conversation with someone you've never met. And the next thing you know, you're praying for them or sharing the gospel for them, right? The gospel with them. Because the presence of God drew them in. The fragrance of God drew them in. Moses says, unless your presence goes with us, how will people know? The presence of Christ within us should be evident to all because it's what makes us distinctively different from the world. Just like his presence with the Israelites made them distinctively different. And so intimacy is a key. It's why we go to the secret place to pray. And perhaps fragrance is one of those ways God rewards us openly. He sees the devotion and time you are making to get to know him in a deep and intimate way. And it blesses him. And the third reason why I believe we are to pray is to surrender. So we pray to know him. We pray to develop intimacy. And now we pray to die to self. Have you ever thought about these three things when entering prayer? Friends, Christ bids us to come die. And the place of our execution, our own self-righteousness, happens when we truly surrender. And what I've personally discovered is that the location of that surrender is the private place of prayer. When we are alone with God, in secret, where no one else is around, no one else is watching. This is where, after committing to knowing him and making time to develop intimacy, we begin to experience his holiness. And in that sacred space, we realize that our own self-righteousness is as filthy rags to him. We begin to truly see our position as creation before our creator, the holy God. Even though we are born again by his son, it's humbling. When I got to this place in my prayer life, my heart began to release everything it was holding on to. Every offense, every person, every pain, every wound, every ugliness. I, I had repented upon salvation. I had repented here and there throughout the years. But true surrender, coming from intimacy, keeps us confessing and repenting every day if need be. It's like doing laundry every day, right? Because it's all about, when you get to a point of surrender, it's all about keeping our holy garments clean from a defiling world. Every day, friends, the defiler is trying to defile us. And so even the smallest stain on our garments in Christ need to be washed away. 
And so it's in surrender, which is why I believe this is a very important reason why we pray. It's in surrender where purity develops in a believer. The book of Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Jude 1, 22-23 Friends, we are daily working out our salvation, keeping ourselves holy and pure and set apart unto Christ and praying that God delivers us from temptation. What this looks like for me in prayer is asking the Holy Spirit to daily search my heart for any unclean thing, any way in which my garments have been defiled by the flesh. It could be something minor. It can be something major. But I go straight to Psalm 139, 23 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Confession, friends, daily confession purifies the soul on a daily basis. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's like taking a spiritual bath every time you enter into prayer. Paul says, I die daily. Well, friends, I die daily. Paul reached this place of surrender, and his life reflected it. He says in Galatians 2.21, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul not only was crucified to Christ, But by the end of the letter, he says he was crucified to the world and the world to him. That's where we need to get to. Too many of us are holding on to this world and the things in it. But we must crucify it all, self and the world. Jesus came and emptied himself, making himself of no reputation. He made prayer to his Father a priority. They knew each other. They were intimate. And he was surrendered to the Father's will. John 5. We too must empty ourselves, making ourselves of no reputation so that we can serve God in holy, reverential fear. Because when we get to that place, when we get to that place of full surrender, you'll realize you're living for one thing and one thing alone to worship Him, worshiping Him with your body, your soul, and your spirit. There's a beautiful song. I encourage you to look it up. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's called No Higher Calling, and the version I have is sung by Maranatha Music. You can look it up. 
But I love the words of this. It's such a reminder of our place before him. And the verses go like this. I, I, I've debated. Should I sing this or not? I am a terrible singer. I just want to, I just <laughs> I want to forewarn you now. But I think I need to sing it just to give you an idea of how it flows. So I apologize in advance. Uh, but I'm going to try to sing this, this one, these couple verses for you. Down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. In your presence, Lord, I seek your face. I seek your face. Down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. In your presence, Lord, I seek your face. For there's no higher calling, no greater honor than to bow and kneel before your throne. I'm amazed at your glory, embraced by your mercy, O Lord. I live to worship you. And it goes on. It goes on. I know, I know. I, I, I'm sticking to my day job, right? <laughs> I'm not a singer. But you get the idea. Friends, Prayer is the catalyst for everything. It's the catalyst for everything. It's the catalyst for serving, for worship, for holiness, for relationship, for purity. So start now. Start today. Begin a routine and stay faithful to it, no matter how small of time you have. Give it to Him. Give Him five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Grow it and then watch God work. I have no doubt in my mind that you'll be blessed. So thank you for joining us today. In part two, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to take this knowledge and then walk through a practical example of how to enter into this kind of praying by taking a journey through the tabernacle of Moses. God bless you today. Mm-hmm.